Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and you've been asking for the update to this case involving a Utah mother and author accused of poisoning her husband. So here it is. This story revolves around Eric Richens and his wife, Corey. Eric was born into a cattle ranching family in Bountiful, Utah, where his family says that nourished his strong work ethic. He grew up religious, and after graduating from the University of Utah, he built his own successful masonry business. He met and married Corey in 2013. They were introduced when Corey worked with a family friend of Eric's at Home Depot. Together, the two had three boys, Carter, Ashton, and Weston. While Eric was building his businesses, Corey became a licensed real estate agent in Park City, Utah. The marriage began to be strained for several years, with some of Eric's family members speculating that Corey was having an affair. Family members also had conversations with Eric about his safety around Corey. Eric's sister told KPCW that Eric had confided in her that he believed Corey would kill him for the life insurance money. The couple was also disagreeing over Corey's fixation on purchasing a sprawling 22,000 square foot unfinished home. Corey was the listing agent for the property, but she wanted to buy the home instead, then finish it, then sell the home. Eric didn't want to shell out the $2 million purchasing price. His family said the only thing stopping the marriage from dissolving was the three kids. They said Eric couldn't bear the thought of not having the boys in his life. Well, on March 4th of 2022, 39-year-old Eric was found unresponsive in his Camas, Utah home. Now, Camas is about 40 miles southeast of Salt Lake City, and here's how that night played out. Corey told investigators that the night her husband died, they were celebrating because she had closed on a home for her real estate business. She said that she had made him a Moscow mule in the kitchen, and then she took it to the bedroom and he drank it while sitting in bed. According to Corey, she said she had left the shared primary bedroom and had slept in one of the children's bedrooms that night because the child had a night terror. She allegedly woke up around 3 a.m. and found her husband was in their bedroom, cold to the touch. She then called 911. Responding officers and EMTs found Eric on the floor at the foot of the bed. Life-saving measures were attempted, but he was declared dead. An autopsy and a toxicology report later found that he died from a fentanyl overdose. The medical examiner who conducted the autopsy said that Eric had five times the lethal dosage of fentanyl in his system. It was also determined that it was illicit fentanyl, not medical grade fentanyl. The ME also said he ingested the drugs orally. Now it appeared that Corey never performed CPR on Eric, even though she had claimed she had. The medical personnel were able to determine this because of the large amount of blood that came from Eric's mouth. 
Corey could also not answer their questions about where his medications were stored. She said the maid moved them to different places. She also told EMS that her husband had a pain pill problem. Now, Corey said she left her cell phone in the shared bedroom and did not take it to her child's room that night. But investigators later learned that her phone had been locked and unlocked several times and that it showed movement during the time frame when she said she was in her child's room. Text messages were sent and received during that time frame as well, but they've been deleted. Now, following the death, investigators launched the over-year-long investigation, and Corey went about living her life. Remember the strain the couple was feeling over the purchase of that $2 million property? Well, Corey closed on that lavish estate on March 5th. That's just one day after her husband died. Well, less than one month after Corey purchased the home, she relisted the home for $5 million. She also authored and published a children's grief book titled, Are You With Me? The description for the book says it's a heartwarming and reassuring read that gently guides children through the difficult experience of losing a loved one. So here's a clip of Corey promoting the book on Good Things Utah this last March. So my husband passed away unexpectedly last year. So it's March 4th was a one year anniversary for us and um, he was 39. It completely took us all by shock Um, and we have three little boys 10 9 and 6 and um, you know we kind of my kids and I kind of wrote this book on the different emotions and grieving processes that we've experienced last year what I have kind of found is as I mentioned it's kind of the three C's is how I has visualize it and it's you know um, connection continuity and care And it's, you know, making sure connection is the one major one and making sure that their spirit is always alive in your home. This Mm -hmm. sounds like it's a touchstone when you need it to come back to for you and your boys. So the first one you had mentioned was connection of the three C's, keeping Mm -hmm. the person's spirit alive. The second continuity. Yes. And that's, you know, just making sure you're trying to stay, you know, as, as much as you can on routine and, you know, whether that's you know sports drop you know sports or pick up and drop off from school or community activities just you know trying to stay in a routine as much as possible and then the last c is care yes what does that mean so you know on top of just loving your kids and hugging them and kissing them and you know extra cuddles and everything i think it's important that i've learned to really affirm you know their feelings when they're mad or they're sad you know it's just that affirmation of i understand like that you are upset you know because of this like let's talk about it just two months After Corey accepted the praise of those two TV journalists about being an amazing mother, she was arrested and charged with aggravated murder and three counts of second-degree felony possession with the intent to distribute of a controlled substance. She is scheduled to make her first court appearance on Friday. Now, during the year-long investigation following Eric's death, investigators found that Eric had told his wife he had cut her out of his will. He also changed the beneficiary of his life insurance. They also learned that Corey had allegedly contacted an acquaintance to obtain fentanyl pills. The probable cause affidavit states she asked the acquaintance for some Michael Jackson stuff. She's presumably asking for propofol, which Jackson died after the administration of a lethal dose of that in 2009. 
She later allegedly obtained 15 to 30 fentanyl pills from a dealer in Ogden, Utah on February 11th of 2022. Now, just three days later, Eric became ill after a Valentine's Day dinner at home with his wife. This was nearly three weeks before his death. His family says Eric believed Corey was trying to poison him during that Valentine's dinner. Corey then allegedly contacted the drug dealer again and obtained more fentanyl worth $900, which police believe Corey used in the alcoholic beverage that she had made for Eric on the night of his death. Well, here's where it stands now. Corey Richens is being held without bond. The mansion that Corey closed on the day after her husband's death? Well, it's under contract for $3.4 million, and we'll just have to wait to see what happens Friday in her court hearing. I'll obviously keep you updated on where this case heads. And now, an update to the Natalie Holloway story from 2005. If you remember, Holloway vanished while vacationing in Aruba with her friends just days after graduating from high school. And here's how the disappearance unfolded. On May 30th of 2005, the Alabama 18-year-old was seen leaving a bar with three young men. Two of the men were the Calpost brothers, and the other man was 17-year-old Yaron Vandersloot. Natalie was scheduled to fly home that very day, but... She never arrived for her flight. Natalie's parents alerted Aruban officials, and the three men were questioned. They said they dropped Natalie at her hotel and did not know anything about Natalie after that point. Aruban officials conducted a massive search for Natalie, but she was never found. A little over four weeks after her disappearance, the three men were arrested in connection with Natalie's disappearance, and then two weeks later... Yoran Vandersloot's father, who is an Aruban judge, was arrested as well. And at this time in 2005, it felt like the investigation was moving along steadily in a direction that would provide answers for the Holloway family. But three weeks later, Yoran's father was released after a judge and a peer of his father said there was not sufficient suspicion of guilt. The Kalpos brothers, they were also released from custody. Then one month later, the brothers are arrested again on suspicion of acting together with Yaron to rape and kill Natalie. But then, just one month later, all three young men were released. So do you have whiplash yet? Imagine how Natalie's family felt that summer. They were incredibly frustrated with Aruban authorities and even went so far as to call for a vacationing boycott to the country. Now the search for Natalie was fueled by their frustration and it was not limited. It included American FBI agents, 50 Dutch soldiers, and Air Force F-16s that had specialized search capabilities. Divers also searched the ocean for Natalie, but the Holloways were left without any answers. All right, well, the whiplash, it's going to continue in this case. As Aruban authorities in late 2007 announced that the case was closed and that no one would be charged with the crime. But then... Three months later, they reopened the case after receiving video footage of Yaron under the effects of marijuana, saying that Natalie died on the morning of her disappearance and that Yaron and a friend had disposed of her body. Of course, Yaron later denied that these comments were accurate and he wasn't rearrested. Okay, let's jump forward to 2010, where Yaron offers to tell Natalie's mother where her daughter's body is in exchange for a monetary payout of $250,000. Natalie's mother actually provides Yaron $25,000, but the location that he offers is inaccurate and Natalie is not found. Well, here's where Yaron trips up. 
Later in 2010, he kills 21-year-old Stephanie Flores in a brutal and aggressive attack in his Peruvian hotel room. This after she allegedly finds information relating to Natalie on his laptop. After killing Flores, Yaron takes money and credit cards from her wallet and flees to Chile. He's later arrested there and he's sent back to Peru. Yaron pleads guilty in 2012 to killing Flores and he says he's really sorry for what had happened. He is then sentenced to 28 years in prison for Stephanie's murder. Okay, but what about Natalie? Well, it was reported last week that finally, Yaron will be extradited to the U.S. from Peru to face charges relating to Natalie's death. Okay, see, a 2001 treaty between the U.S. and Peru allows for temporary extradition in instances where a Peruvian national has already been convicted of a crime. So, Yaron lands in this circle. He has been convicted. Now, the charges that Yaron faces in Alabama are related to the extortion of money by Yaron in that part of the case where he promised he would tell where Natalie's remains were located if Natalie's mom would give him $250,000. Now, it's unclear if the charges in Alabama may help investigators find Natalie's remains, but it does bring some peace to Natalie's mother. She said in a statement that Natalie would be 36 years old now and that this has been a very very long and painful journey, but that the persistence of many is going to pay off. She wrote that together, they are finally getting justice for Natalie. Now, we discussed last week how the gears of justice grind slowly and that we're seeing that occur in the extradition possibilities in the Shanquela Robinson murder out of Mexico. And I wouldn't expect this to be any different. This could take months for Yaron to be moved to the U.S., but at least the process has started and we'll be watching for the progress in this case. And now to the big news from Friday. Lori Vallow Daybell is guilty on all charges. It took just seven hours for the jury to find her guilty of first-degree murder for the deaths of her two children, seven-year-old JJ and 16-year-old Tylee. She was also found guilty on conspiracy to commit murder for both of the children and for her current husband's previous wife, Tammy. Lori was also found to be guilty of grand theft by deception because she kept receiving social security payments for the kids after their deaths. So let's back up. This is the incredibly complicated case out of Idaho involving two dead spouses, two dead children, and a dead brother. And if you aren't familiar with this case, you can go back and listen to the Rise in Crime update from two weeks ago that gives a pretty good retelling of the whole story. But here is as succinct as I can summarize. In 2018, Lori Vallow met Chad Daybell through a new but growing end-of-the-times prepping group. By the summer of 2019, Lori's brother Alex had killed Lori's husband, Charles Vallow claiming he was protecting Lori. Then by September of 2019, Lori's two kids were missing. And then in October of 2019, Chad's wife Tammy Daybell dies suddenly at their Salem, Idaho home. Then in June of 2020, the bodies of JJ and Tylee were found buried in the backyard of Chad's property. Now during these two years, Chad had developed a following in his new religious sect and Lori and Alex were neck deep in the beliefs. Well, let's dive into the closing arguments and jury deliberations that led to these guilty verdicts. The state on Thursday would have made your high school English teacher so proud. This trial was like a well-written essay paper. They began with their opening statements and presented their thesis that Lori was all about money, power, and sex. 
They presented evidence that included 60 witnesses over the next four weeks, backing up that thesis. And then they closed the trial by reiterating the conclusion that JJ, Tylee, and Tammy all died because of Lori's desires for money, power, and sex. Now, Madison County Prosecutor Rob Wood described for the jurors how Lori was once a loving mother, but she began to spiral. And that spiral coincided with an obsession over fringe religious beliefs adopted by her now husband, Chad Daybell. Wood said those beliefs were used to manipulate others and also to justify their crimes. Lori and Chad called people zombies if they believed they were possessed. They also would attempt to cast out evil spirits of those people that they thought measured high on their concocted dark scale. Now, one witness testified Lori could cast Satan out by folding Satan into a taco and locking him in a box in Antarctica. Okay, so talk about some fringe beliefs. Well, those fringe religious beliefs, that's the power portion of the state's case. The money portion came into play when Lori thought she would get a large life insurance payout for Charles. She did not. Charles had changed his beneficiary because he was worried about Lori's newfound religion, and he thought he might be in danger. So they had to find money from somewhere. When Tammy died, Chad received $430,000 in life insurance payments. Tammy died on a Saturday. Chad was filing for that insurance money on Monday morning. Lori also could continue to receive the $4,000 per month of social security payments for JJ and Tylee as long as she didn't report them missing or dead to the government. And of course, there is the sex part of the deaths. The state presented steamy texts between Chad and Lori that inferred they were involved in a months-long affair before their respective spouses were killed. Chad even wrote a fictional romantic novel where the main characters, James and Elena, were modeled after the love affair that Chad and Lori were having. In one text exchange, Chad told Lori that he feels like the grown-up version of Harry Potter who has to live with the Dudleys in his little space under the stairs. He wrote, every few weeks he gets to escape and have amazing adventures with his goddess lover, but then he has to return to his place under the stairs feeling trapped, but that he senses permanent freedom is coming. Okay, well, I think his senses might be off since Chad has been incarcerated awaiting trial since June of 2020. Now for the defense's closing arguments. Lori's attorney, Jim Archibald, was a bit more laid back than the prosecution. He talked about how Alex and Chad were ultimately responsible for the deaths of Tammy, JJ, and Tylee, and that Lori was a wonderful mother before meeting Chad and being swept up in his religious cult. He referenced Chad's stupid books and weird religion. He also said, despite the 15,000 texts that were admitted into evidence, none of them directly referenced Lori being responsible for the deaths. Now, after the closing arguments, Lori was visibly upset. Some reports indicate Lori was very frustrated with her attorneys for painting her husband, Chad, as a weird religious zealot. Other insider reports say Lori is still committed to Chad, and she believed that angels were protecting her during the trial. Now, during the reading of the verdict on Friday, Lori remained stone-faced with her arms folded across her chest. The gallery was also very respectful and quiet. After the verdict was read outside the courtroom, JJ's grandparents, Larry and Kay Woodcock, were greeted by a crowd singing Queens, we will rock you. Larry had told the crowd it was one of JJ's favorite songs. Woodcock faced the many media outlet cameras and said, JJ, I love you, as he looked at the sky. Then he said, Tylee, Papa loves you. Tammy, I never met you, but you are part of our life. Tammy, 
I am sorry for what happened to you. He then raised his fist, which had bracelets of the names of Tylee Ryan, J.J. Vallow, and Charles Vallow inscribed. Now, the sentencing phase of this trial will most likely happen in August after Judge Boyce has time to review the entire trial. During the sentencing, victims will be allowed to give their impact statements. Chad is expected to face similar charges in June of 2024. However, Chad is still eligible for the death penalty in his charges. And Arizona has already signaled their intent to extradite Lori to Arizona following the sentencing. She will face criminal charges there for the death of her husband, Charles. Now, I spoke to two criminal defense attorneys who said that Lori will have 45 days following the sentencing to appeal the verdict. When I asked them if they felt that she possibly had viability in that appeal, they said referencing the objections by the defense are critical in determining if her appeal has credibility. Okay, so one such area of the trial that her attorneys strongly objected to was the ability for retired FBI agent Doug Hart to select various text messages from Lori's iCloud accounts. The agent had prepared PowerPoint presentations and the judge allowed the presentation despite Lori's attorney saying he was being allowed to tell a narrative rather than just presenting evidence. And for those of you wondering, the fact that the defense did not call a single witness or expert or submit a single piece of evidence, well, that's not grounds for a mistrial or appeal. The defense attorneys told me that the courts in Idaho respect the right of the defense to state that the prosecution did not prove their case. As always, I'll be on watch for the sentencing portion of this case, and I'll keep you updated. Well, that's your Monday edition of Rise in Crime. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.